following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. A real quick, um, kind of a speed review uh, of where Israel has been, because the context of uh, Israel... And their journey is pretty important um, to understand the context of what is going on here. Because we're talking about clothing this morning and um, kind of an odd topic, really, uh, especially for me, a guy, to be talking about clothing. Because I like I just grab stuff out of my closet and I don't really think too much about what I'm wearing. But God thought a lot about what his priest should be wearing. But let's see the context for this. Um, Israel had been in Egypt for about 400 years. Well, that's a long time. That's a long time for anybody to be anywhere. And it obviously would have shaped their identity. Who they were thinking about as um, who they were and who God is, what's real, what's important, what's valuable, has been surrounding them in an Egyptian culture for 400 years. And thinking about who is God for them would have been something like, yeah, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they worshipped a god, Elohim. Um, and so we're going to worship him. And we knew, we know that after 400 years of that, there were still faithful people because Moses' family refused to uh, submit to the Egyptians. They protected him, protected Moses, and asked God to protect him. God did protect him. So there was a, still a faithful remnant. But they were a minority they're a minority religion, kind of like Christians in Thailand. And as Christians in Thailand are looking around, who's really God? Um, on Sunday, it feels like you know, you're the majority. But on Monday, you know, you're back in your neighborhood and you're surrounded by people who have very different views about God. So here are the Israelites in Egypt, surrounded by a polytheistic culture, many different gods, uh, many different uh, Specialty gods, you know, if you if you were going through childbirth or marriage problems or you wanted more wealth or you were facing death, there were deities, gods for all of those things. So you had to be really good at, you know, who the special God was for that moment. That was the Egyptian culture. God shows up and says, I have heard your cries. And he comes to Moses and he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I'm going to tell you who I am. And I want you to go back to the Israelites and say, Yahweh Your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is here to deliver you. So what he does, instead of just snapping his fingers and causing the Israelites to walk out of Egypt, which he could have done, and he did eventually, he took a long time, several chapters, to go through systematically showing that Yahweh is superior to all the gods of Egypt. And so as the Israelites are trying to figure out who is Elohim, and now he has this name that he's given to us, Yahweh, who is this God, Yahweh? Yahweh is introducing himself to them in a very powerful way by knocking over one by one the different gods of Egypt. And finally, as they cross the Red Sea, the Israelites with no arms, no weapons, are being followed, chased by the leading military at that time with high-tech weapons called chariots. And the Israelites are like, we're dead. We're dead. And God says, no, just, just walk through the sea. Abraham or Moses, hold out your stick. He holds out his stick. The wind blows all night. 
The seas are parted. The Israelites walk through, and they look back, and here comes the army charging through. The water closes up, and God defeats the military superpower of that time without the Israelites having to do anything except walk through. So here, the Israelites are learning. They're learning who is Yahweh. They're learning the, not just the name, but the character and the power of this God. And he brings them out into the wilderness. And they have their first summer camp experience. You know, all the iPods are left behind. All the Egyptian cultural baggage is left behind. And they're out there in the middle of the wilderness with nobody else around them. And God fulfills his promise to Moses. He said back in the early part when Moses was saying, God, how am I going to know that you're going to do all this stuff you say you're going to do? He says, Moses, you'll know when you come back to this mountain and worship me. So here God comes down to the mountain fulfilling his promise to Moses. And he says... I am Yahweh. And then he gives the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. You shall honor the Sabbath to keep it holy. You shall not take my name in vain. Honor your mother and father. No killing, no stealing, no um, lying, no coveting. They go through all this and they're learning who is this God. And as they're journeying along, they have the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. This is what they say to Moses. Is that up there? Exodus 20, 18 to 21. This was the Israelites' response to being in the presence of Yahweh. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So here, the people have met Yahweh. They've seen what he did to the gods of Egypt. They've seen what he did to the armies of Pharaoh. They have seen him as he comes down and his presence tears apart Mount Sinai. It's just, it's an earthquake. It's, it's thunder. It's lightning. It's all of the, the natural powers of the earth are being concentrated on this mountain. And the people are terrified. Moses had set boundaries and they probably came up to the boundaries. But as soon as God comes down on Mount Sinai, they're backing up. They're backing up. Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to talk to God face to face, lest we die. And so it's this God, this holy God, who has placed the fear of himself on his people so that they don't sin, is now laying out a blueprint for Moses saying, this is how you will approach me and not die. I'm going to prescribe some things for you. And Tim's been talking about a blueprint for worship and is exactly what he has given to them. Now, I want you to be aware of something else, too. Um, in Numbers 9.15, go to Numbers 9. You're skipping over Exodus, Leviticus. Uh, by the way, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is just a, an awesome collection of books. And I, I, don't, I don't know if Tim's going to go right on into Leviticus or not, but he should. Um, wonderful, wonderful stuff about the holiness of God. Numbers chapter 9. Just another insight into what the Israelite experience was like. This is a little bit in the future. 
on the day that the tabernacle was set up. So all of these instructions that we're going through right now, they're actually acted upon. They build the tabernacle. When they build the tabernacle, this is what happened. The cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. Now, this is not new to the Israelites because the Israelites have already seen God manifesting himself in the shape of a a pillar of cloud during the day, which gave them shade, and a pillar of fire at night, which gave them light and warmth. They saw that at the Red Sea. When God defeated the Israel or the Egyptian army, they saw this pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And here it comes down. It is a visible manifestation of the presence of God on this tabernacle after they built it. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after the people of Israel set out and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. It was kind of like their... Their, uh, I don't even know what to liken it to. It was their announcement. Okay, it's time to take up camp. It's time to set out. When the clouds started to move away from the ark of the, or the from the tabernacle, everybody knew it's time to pack it in and get moving. And this was a regular thing. It was always there. They always could come out and look at the ark of the or the tabernacle, and they could see if it was sitting there, it was fine. God said, stay in the camp. They didn't go anywhere. When it was moving. That was when it was time to go. And it wasn't just the Israelites who could see it. Look at Numbers chapter 14, 14, 13. Now, this is Moses interceding for the people. The people have rebelled. But I want you to get in a, a sense of how present God was as the priests are serving in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Moses is interceding with the Israelites. God has said, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to start over again with you, Moses. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. Why not? Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, Canaan, they have heard that you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of this people. How do they know that? For you, O Yahweh, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness." So this presence of God, this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, is on the tabernacle, and it's visible not only to the Israelites, but to the nations around them. Their God travels with them. And so when we look at the blueprint for worship, we're talking about how do you come before this God who is manifesting himself in something that's visible to everyone all around? How do you come into the presence of this God whose presence tears apart mountains? So this is serious stuff. When we talk about, do we, you know, the title of my sermon is, do we come as we are or do we dress for success? And I don't mean you all have to have ties. I don't think anybody here has a tie on. That's not what I'm talking about. But the idea is God gets to describe how we approach him. And he's doing this in a very meticulous, special way in this, um, in this chapter here in Exodus chapter 28. Not only does God tell Moses, but he's actually given Moses pictures. Now, we don't have those pictures, but he says in a number of different places that follow the pattern that I showed you. So we know that God is telling him how to do it, but we also know that Moses has actually seen the images. 
He's seen what God has in mind. And so when Moses goes and talks to the, the craftsmen who are going to do the weaving, who are going to do the jewelry work, who are going to build the tent, who are going to build the, the, the furniture in the um, tabernacle, they've actually had it described to them by somebody who saw what God had in mind. God cared about the details. And so as we look at some of these details, I want you to, to think about it as coming directly from God. First of all, God described a tabernacle, which is a special space. And uh, last week, either last week or the week before, uh, talk, did a great job talking about this special space and how it was walled off by a tall um, curtain so people from the outside couldn't see in and people on the inside couldn't see out. It was a designated space that says, in this space, this is where the worship of Yahweh is going to take place, in a unique, undistracted environment. No trespassing. In this special place. And you bring a sacrifice. Tim talked about this last week. It's a special offering. Not just any old sheep will do. There's no blemish. No spot. No flaw. No lameness. No injury. And part of the priest's job was to inspect the sheep and the goats that were brought to make sure that they were, in fact, spotless. That they are worthy of being offered to Yahweh. And the priests also were a special people. They are chosen from one particular tribe, Levi, but also from one particular line, the line of Aaron. You had to be in that particular line in order to be a priest. It wasn't just an election. It wasn't just, hey, I think I want to do that. Hey, that sounds cool. I think I want to work in the tabernacle. No, you have to be from this line. And not only that, no one handicapped, no one maimed, no one blind, no one having anything wrong with them is allowed to serve as priest before God. You have to be perfect, physically perfect, to come before God. That's a baseline. So we have special place, offering, and people. And these special people are going to wear special clothing. They have to wear prescribed clothing. And that's what Exodus 28 is all about. One thing that Scripture often does is repeat itself. And uh, sometimes you wonder... Where the author is just getting lazy, you know, is like, man, this chapter, I'm really getting tired. I think I'll just finish it up. Let me go copy, paste. You know, and, and like, hey, wait a minute. Moses, you already said that. Why should I have to read it again? I'm trying to get through my devotions here, and you're making me read the same verse over again. Come on. I'm like, give me a condensed, you know, like a Reader's Digest Bible. Leave all that stuff out. But you would be missing some significant literary devices. Because one of the ways that the writers emphasize something is they use bookends. And I want you to see some bookend verses in this Exodus chapter 28. Look at verses uh, 1 through 3. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful people whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Now skip down to the end, 40 to 41. For Aaron's son, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. 
There are a couple of lines that are repeated at the beginning of this chapter and at the end of the chapter. The first one is, serve me. Yahweh is not, sh- is not embarrassed to ask people to serve him. He's God. He's the only one in the universe who deserves our worship and our praise and our service. So he says, set apart these people to serve me as priests. Now, when we read the word priest, we think, yeah, he's the guy that that offers a sacrifice to God. And he cuts up the sacrifices. Yes, that was part of it. But he also had some other significant roles. And we'll get into those as we get into the passage. But you need to remember that Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy. That means that God was the king. He was the king of Israel. And the priests were the intercessors between God and the people. And that means more than just praying. That means if you had a legal decision, if you had an issue with your wife or with your children or with your business partner, or if somebody's bull gored you or your son and you had a legal issue, that was going back to the priests. The priests were the ones who were ultimately going to decide that. So not only are they the priests, they are the intercessor for your spiritual welfare, but for your legal issues, they would be judge and jury as well. Because it's a theocracy. Remember later on in Samuel when they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations. God told Samuel, Samuel, do what they want. They're not rejecting you from being king. They're rejecting me from being king over them. They didn't like being a theocracy. But at this point... This is how God is setting it up. I'm the king, and these are the ones who will serve me and represent the people to me spiritually and legally. Another one that's repeated is the garments are for glory and beauty. Now, how many of you are reading um, the passage today out of the NIV? Okay. Now, I, I teach... Um, theology, and one of the things I spend a lot of time on is Bible translation. And it is never my agenda to pick on a translation. But the NIV in this particular passage just rubs me enough the wrong way I want to point out something. Because the way they translate this, it makes it sound like the point is to bring glory and honor to the priests. I'm like, no. This is so not the focus of this passage. So I'm sure that those translators, whoever they are, have repented and have... In the updated, they've changed it. I don't know. But I just, I want to say that it's not about the priests. Because the priests are not saying, hey, look at me. No, this is not what's going on in this passage. It is all about Yahweh, and this is how you come before me. So the purpose of these garments is for glory and beauty for Yahweh, for God. This is to to show that those who serve him are serving him in in an honorable capacity. So, yes, there's honor given to the priest, but the focus is glory and beauty for whom the text itself, the Hebrew text leaves it out. But the assumption is that it's Yahweh. It's God. The glory and beauty is for him and for his benefit. So the glory and beauty and to serve me as priest. Those are the bookend ideas here. Okay. We got a, a funky picture. Now, if you go and search on the internet for Old Testament high priest image, there's some really crazy stuff out there. This is, this is pretty good. Um, but never having been there and having only the text, you have to understand that the artist has really done a lot of creativity here. Great work. But this is not inspired. But it is a visual help. And since we're talking about clothing and what stuff looks like, I thought it would be nice to have a picture. So there you go. 
Um, Kai, my seven-year-old, wanted to know, Dad, are you going to dress up? Mom said, no. Okay, so I'm not dressed up like that, which is a good thing. But I got some stuff here. This is linen, okay? This is what these clothes are made out of. So I'm going to pass the sample around. You can feel it. Uh, maybe you felt linen. If you're in, in, in a family that doesn't have fancy napkins, then you don't know what linen feels like. But this is real linen. And for those of you who want to stretch your Thai vocabulary, I had to figure out what is the Thai word for linen. And it just, I know this will come as a shock to you, but the word in Thai is pa linen. That's what I said, and this is what I got. So uh, you can feel it. This is what the, the priests were going to be wearing. This is what they wore. Um, uh, around them. Interesting bit of trivia. Um, the Israelites had just come out of Egypt. The Egyptians have been making linen for hundreds of years before this time. So this is not like new stuff. This is fabric that you make out of a plant, out of plant fibers. It's also what they wrap their mummies in. Okay? So if you want to know what a mummy feels like, you're feeling it right now. So it's linen. So that's what these, uh, that's what these garments are made out of. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So this is the, the, the introduction to what these are going to be like. Do I have verses 35 and 43? Let's, let me look at those real fast. Because this is the, the stakes that we're talking about here. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound, talking about the, the bell and his robe, shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. The clothes that they wore were being prescribed. And if they didn't follow the prescription that God was giving to them, the priests would die. Does Nadab and Abihu sound familiar to you? The priests, the sons of Aaron? Those are the ones that were struck down. God killed them because they offered unauthorized incense to God. Serious business. So here is God laying out these restrictions. This is what you're supposed to wear. Dress right or die. The priests are responsible for the order of worship. And I don't just mean, you know, what comes first, what comes next, but that it be an orderly presentation. And that the sacrifices that are brought are following the prescribed rules. And when you get into Leviticus, you start finding out that there were very minute details given about how to butcher the animals. Now, when you, when you look at the, the image of the priest and his clothes and you think about him being a butcher, it's like, wow, that's, you know, I mean, they're talking about going in and grabbing the kidneys. And if any of you have ever butchered a large animal, but the kidneys are very hard to get to. Um, and you're going to get blood on you when you are doing what God asks them to do. But these are the clothes that they wear. The priests are responsible for orderly worship. Any infractions were the responsibility of the priest. It went all the way up to the high priest. 
The priest's garment colors identified them with a tabernacle. So red, blue, purple, and gold strands. The gold strands they made by taking a sheet of gold and hammering it until it was thin. You can hammer gold till it's just molecules thick. It's the nature of gold. It can be hammered thin. And then they cut it into strips, long strands, and they weave those into the fabric. So these garments that they wore were not just colored gold. They had gold in them, along with the red and the purple and the blue. And that's the exact same colors that the tabernacle had in it. So these colors identified the priest with the tabernacle. Now, you can go out on the Internet and look up colors, tabernacle, symbolism, and there'll be all kinds of documents you can find there. But they're all made up. The Bible doesn't tell us what these colors symbolize. It's not given anywhere. All it says is for glory and for beauty. God picked these colors because they're beautiful and pretty, and he wants those colors in his temple. Now, if you want to come up with symbolism for them, fine, but please don't say that God gave them to you. So they, they come for glory and for beauty. Again, the high priest... Look at verses uh, 6 through 14. They shall make the ephod of gold. How many of you have an ephod? You might, actually. Um, when you're, you're going home and you've got your nice clothes on and you're going to be cutting up potatoes or, or you're going to be you know, taking some chicken and breading the chicken and putting it, what do you put on to cover up your nice clothes? An apron. Okay, that's what an ephod is. All right, so don't get stuck on the crazy word. All right? It's just an apron. It's something that you put over your head and goes down over the rest of your your clothing. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges so that it may be joined together. So it, it attaches here at the shoulder. And the skillfully, skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones. And engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. So here and here are going to be two stones that have engraved in them the names of the Israelites. Now, I've seen some, some uh, seals, and they're, they're rocks, and they have carved into these rocks very, very intricate designs, and they're used for... Um, sealing things. They roll them in the, the wet clay and it leaves a, a design in the clay that's unique to that person's. Very, very skillful. And so what Aaron is doing when he comes into the presence of God, he's representing the people spiritually significantly before the people, but also figuratively, or rather literally, he has their names right here on his shoulders. Aaron, don't forget, you're representing us before Yahweh. We can't go into the Holy of Holies. Only you can, but you can bring us there. You can bring us into the presence of God. And, and so he has their names on his shoulders. As a jeweler engraves signets or rings, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance. Stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, that God would remember them. And Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the setting. It's all held together with gold cording. So what we've just described are these two stones right here. 
And this, this whole thing here is the ephod. Now, whether or not it had any kind of sleeves or not, we're not sure. But we know it had a hole here for the head, and it went right down over the head. So this is what we talked about here. Now we're going to talk about this piece right here. And interestingly, this piece right here is the, takes up the most text because it's describing the stones and the, um, it's called the breastplate of judgment or decision. And we'll talk about why that is. Verse uh, 15, you shall make a breast piece of judgment. Some of you may have a breast piece of decision. And uh, either one of those words is fine. We'll, we'll talk about that. In skilled work, in the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. So this is about nine inches by nine inches. So about the length of your hand from your wrist to your fingers approximately is about how big this is. It might not be quite as big as it's pictured here, but it doesn't really matter. But this is a, um, a breast piece, but it's folded in half. It's made out of fabric. These stones are connected to it with gold filigree with, you know, like, you know, the kind of setting that you would have that hold a gemstone, only a big one. And then it's folded in half. So that this is actually a pocket. And inside this pocket are the Urim and the Thummim. Okay, you can look that up and you'll find all kinds of people describing what the Urim and Thummim is and probably telling you how you can get connected to the Urim and the Thummim. Um, but we don't know anything about it. Just these are the way that the priest decided um, what God's decision was. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but that's inside. And so it's called the breastplate of decision or judgment because it's part of how the priest decided what God's will was. Remember, he is the judge and the jury communicating God's will from Yahweh to the people. And so if he didn't know the answer to a question, he was trying to figure out who was guilty or not, God would help him. Find that out through the Urim and the Thummim. There are no instructions in the Old Testament as to how to make them. He just says, put them in there. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Now go on down to uh, verse 20 at the end there. All of these different stones, and I'm not going to list them out there. They're in your Bible. Um, Again, just pretty stones that God had given for his people to represent each one of the tribes. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets or rings, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. Now, what you have to realize is as as you look at the the picture that keeps popping up there, you think, well, you know, this was 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago. And you think, you know, it must have been kind of crude, you know, not, not very pretty. How many of you have seen pictures of the gold stuff that came out of King Tutankhamun's tomb? King Tut. Okay? King Tut was ruling around the same time as this was being done. The Israelites have been in Egypt for all this time. They're making linen. They're doing fine weaving. And they've got great jewelers. Here's what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about the jewelry of this period of time. From 1539 to 1292 B.C., which includes this time frame that we're working with with the Israelites right now, the diadems, necklaces, pectorals, amulets, pendants, bracelets, earrings, and rings are of superb quality and of a high degree of refinement that has rarely been surpassed or even equaled in the history of jewelry. This is beautiful, beautiful work that's being done here. And as if that's not enough, 
Look at Exodus 31. So the Israelites have seen beautiful jewelry in in Egypt. They know what it looks like. Whether or not they were skilled in making that jewelry, we're not sure. But here's what God says. In Exodus 31, Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every detail. So if the Egyptians without the Spirit of God, can make stuff that jewelry historians say has seldom been surpassed or even equaled. Here, God is giving His people, His Spirit, to make some really pretty stuff. Now, we don't have it anymore, but I bet it knocks King Tut out of the park. So here he is coming before, the the, the high priest is coming before God in glory and in beauty. There is one stone per tribe. So not only does he have the names of the tribes on his shoulders, but he has the names of each tribe on this breastplate coming before God. The role of the priest is to represent the Israelites before God. The Israelites said, Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to talk to God face to face lest we die. The high priest has been given that responsibility to speak to God on behalf of the people. And he comes to God dressed for success. Aaron would represent them before the Lord. Verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And remember, I've already mentioned the Urim and the Thummim. This is in verse 30. And in the breastpiece of judgment, inside, in that pocket that's been created by folding over the fabric, You shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before Yahweh regularly. This is a reminder, this is a a picture of the spiritual role that the high priest has as he goes before Yahweh in the tabernacle. Again, the priests were... The representatives, they were judge and jury. Israel was a theocracy, and God is the king, and he's ruling through these priests. And you remember the cities of refuge? If you accidentally killed someone, and the jury decided that you weren't guilty of premeditated murder, or even um, you know, murder and anger, you could go to the city of refuge. And you had to stay there how long? Till the high priest died. All right? So, again, as another reminder that this was a theocracy and it was all tied to the death of the high priest. When the high priest died, you were allowed to leave the city of refuge because they were the ones who had decided who was supposed to go there and not supposed to go there. And all the cities of refuge were also Levite cities. That's all part of this theocratic structure. Now, we're back to the high priest image again. Bells and pomegranates. Okay, so here's the robe right here, and down here at the bottom would be bells, little ding, ding, ding bells, and probably made of gold, very nice timber, and then there's also pomegranates. Now, we don't know if the the pomegranates were actually physical pomegranates that were hanging between the bells or if they're pomegranates that were woven into the border. 
It's not real clear in the text which way it is. Not really relevant, um, except for one little detail. When I was in Israel a long time ago, they had this pomegranate on display. And the Israeli Antiquities Authority were really proud of this thing um, because it might be, it was a pomegranate, carved pomegranate, and it might be from the, the hem of the high priest's robe. And it had inscribed on the top of the pomegranate, right below the stem, something that looked an awful lot like holy unto the Lord. And this thing was worth millions, and they didn't even display the original. You know, they had just a copy there for you to see. Of course, you read later on, it was actually a fake, and they got fooled, and it really wasn't the pomegranate. Um, So, again, we don't know if these were real pomegranates um, or if they were just woven into into the design. But they're... They're just there for beauty, for decoration. But the bells play an important role. Because as the priest is moving around, his robe is swinging and the bells are ringing. And they're signifying to the people outside of the holy place. Okay, so the priests, they go inside into the, into the um, not the holy of holies, but inside the spot where the altar are, the altar of incense, the showbread, and the golden lampstand, the altar of incense is all in there. So as he's moving around in there, you can hear the bells ringing. That does two things. One, you know he's still alive. <laughs> Important. And two, it reminds everybody that you come into God's presence not unannounced, You don't just barge into God's presence, but you come with an announcement saying, I am entering into your presence. Even when the high priest is in the area where he's allowed to be to do his job. Do not come into the presence of Yahweh without ceremony. Again, the cap or the turban. Now, for me, turban just sounds really weird. But remember, this was not prescriptions for how to dress your pastor. This was the high priest back then, and I'm sure that the high priest looked normal to everybody back then. God wouldn't have said, you know, you need to dress him up so he looks like some um, wild animal. This is just what they wore. So here's his cap. And this gold plate right here is the one thing I want you to focus on. So he's wearing a hat, and he's got this gold plate, which is right on his forehead, like a frontlet. Look at uh, verses 36 to 38. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. No pressure, Aaron. But you're going to have a plate on your forehead that reminds you that everything you're doing needs to be holy to the Lord. All these offerings that are being brought, all the sacrifices of the people, all the grain offerings, the wine offerings, the burnt offerings, the love offerings, the thank offerings, the sheep and the goats that are coming through, the doves that are being torn apart, all of this stuff is under your purview as the high priest and it needs to be holy to the Lord. And if it's not, you bear the guilt. Exodus 3, 5, Moses before the burning bush. Moses says, I will go and see this strange thing. And God says, stop. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now look at the illustration here. The artist was paying attention, chose not to ad-lib. What do you see on this priest's feet? Nothing. Nothing. The priest is in the presence of God, and he takes his shoes off. 
There are no shoes prescribed in the outfit for the high priest because he is standing on holy ground. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. Thou shalt reach from the hips to the thighs. And we play this game with my seven-year-old and we say, look under there. Kai, look under there. He won't say it. You're supposed to say, underwear. Oh. It's talking about underwear here. Now, it's not pictured on the, on the slide because they're underneath the rope. But God says, I want my priest to wear underwear. And we think, well, that's kind of odd, a little personal. Israel was going into the land of Canaan, and the dominant religion there was a fertility cult. And there was unspeakable immorality that went on in the worship of the Canaanite gods, Baal, Ashtoreth. And the worship in those temples was all about fertility, intercourse. And God said, that has no part in my worship. I want to make it clear that there's to be no nakedness in the worship of me. And you get to 1 Samuel 2.22. Eli's sons are sleeping with the women who are worshiping at the tabernacle. They were violating this command. And God killed Eli and both his sons on the same day because they violated the holiness of Yahweh in this particular regard. They needed to have the linen breeches, the linen underwear on, lest they bear guilt and die. So who is the reality? Who is the reality behind these pictures that the Israelites practiced in the wilderness? Hebrews chapter 9 Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself Repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Our high priest has our names on his chest. And because of his own sacrifice, he can go into the presence of God and represent us before our holy God. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.